You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, uh, these new members began their journey to membership at Grace, at the Grace Connection class, which is a class designed to help those who want more information about uh, Grace Community Church, how we function, what we believe, um, how our leadership structure is, um, it, it has been devised, and, and how you can serve at Grace Community Church. One of our core values is every member a minister, so our desire is that everyone who becomes a member is a, 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 a understands the important role that God has given uh, him or her in the body at, at Grace Community Church. And our next Grace Connection class is going to be held on April 24th and 25th. We'll have three sessions on the Saturday morning, the 24th, and then we'll have one session on the 25th where we'll have a lot of different ministry leaders sharing uh, the opportunities that are available to you here at Grace. So write that date down. If you are interested in membership, it is, just because you come, we're not assuming that you're going to be a member, but it is a prerequisite for membership, this class. Typically, it's held over four weeks. We'll do it over one weekend uh, this particular time. Well, we celebrate this Easter morning in unity with our brothers and sisters around the world of nearly 2,000 years. Not just those who are alive today. We've been celebrating this for 2,000 years. We acknowledge not only the crucifixion, which Jesus endured as the payment that sinners owed and could never pay, but we also acknowledge his resurrection on Sunday morning after the Friday crucifixion. He is risen. He is risen indeed. 1 Corinthians 15, from which Pastor Jeff read this morning, tells us that without Jesus' resurrection, all that we have read about Jesus in John's gospel and everything that we believe is false. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, everything we believe is false. And we are, of all people, most miserable. Now, 20 years ago, you might have said, no, no, this life is so much better. Now, if we are believing a lie, it's very clear. We are, of all people, most miserable. <clears throat> you often hear believers say something like, I just don't see how unbelievers walk through these difficult times. And if you walk in like that sentiment, it makes perfect sense. When you understand the difference between light and darkness, you can look back and say, how? How do you make it if you don't have this comfort, this love, this, this assurance of purpose from Jesus? But if you walk in darkness, your eyes adjust to the dark. And you begin to wonder how it is that Christians believe what they do. As those who have met the risen Christ, we are grateful for the Lord's comfort and peace in a world of woe that crushes sinner and saint alike. We are grateful, as Isaiah 53 tells us, and as we were reminded 
Friday night that not only was it the will of the Father to crush the suffering servant as an offering for our guilt, but that Jesus would also prolong his days, clearly implying his resurrection. Thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see in our text today that although Jesus' resurrection was vaguely prophesied in the Old Testament and clearly prophesied by Jesus himself, the first witnesses of the resurrection were confused about what was happening. Now, we understand much better than the women who were at the grave and saw the risen Christ. And, and we understand better. We, we know more than the disciples and the apostles who would see him later in the day. What did it all mean? What did it mean that Jesus had died on a cross saying, it is finished, and then was raised to life? What did all of that mean? Well, we must rely on the New Testament epistles to make sense of the ultimate meaning, where at the end of Romans 4, we're told that Jesus' resurrection was proof of the Father's acceptance of his son's sacrifice, making possible the forgiveness of our sins. Do you get that? Jesus died on Friday. He said, it is finished. As we talked about last Sunday, that word, Greek word, tetelestai, means it is fully paid, accomplished, an obligation has been met. And being in the perfect tense in the Greek, what that means is it's an action that was accomplished in the past that has implications to the present. Not only did Jesus die and say, okay, I have done it all, but the resurrection confirmed that God accepted his death, his absorption of God's wrath towards sin as a substitute and sacrifice for us. Hallelujah for the resurrection. John's account, the Gospel of John's account of Jesus' resurrection is one of only four accounts, all of which tell the same story but differ in a few details. Can I just say this about the minor differences? We've been processing this for several weeks now as we look at all four accounts because they all spent an enormous amount of time on the last week of Jesus' life and his resurrection. Can I just say this? In, in addition to different emphases for theological purposes that the authors were using, none of the accounts give a minute-by-minute -minute blow of the events of that day. They picked out different pieces of it that were important for the purposes of their letter or their book. Was Mary Magdalene alone or were others with her? Or was she there two different times? All such questions are interesting for the careful student of Scripture. If you want to get in there and dig around, you surely can. It's, it's, it's fascinating to think about all different accounts. But we can easily be distracted by our obsession with pinpoint accuracy of all details that has only been important since the Enlightenment for the last 250 to 300 years. And even, even with that obsession for accuracy, let four different newspaper reporters cover one event and see how different they are. And they're all covering the exact same event. Is it more difficult to believe that four different authors giving slightly different accounts of Jesus' life, message, ministry, death, and resurrection, that very slightly here and there, is it more difficult to believe that these are all telling 
the exact same story than it is to believe that God came to earth, God's son came to earth, lived a sinless life, died as a sacrifice for sins, and was buried only to rise again for the justification of our sins. In the end, either we believe or we don't. In the end, either you believe this or you don't. Now, that's not to say that those who have difficulty harmonizing the four Gospels to the, to the exact detail do not believe in the incarnation, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus. But this morning, we're going to look at John's account of Jesus' resurrection and take it as it is. And if all this stuff that I've been saying is like, huh? You're thinking, what? what? It's going to get better from here, I promise you. Uh, we're going to seek to understand John's reason for, for writing the way that he did. Even as John confesses his own confusion on that day that Jesus rose from the dead. If, that is, the apostle John is the one describing himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we think he is. Today's text is John 20 verses 1 through 23. And on this Easter Sunday... I'm going to read the Apostle John's account of the resurrection, give a few comments along the way, praying that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts to the truth of God's Word. In fact, let's do that together. Would you pray with me even now? Father, we come to you this day full of praise, full of curiosity about what your Scripture says about the resurrection and full of hearts that are forever grateful for the price that Jesus paid for us. Lord, we confess that sometimes we are like those who saw on the first day just trying to make sense of what was happening. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to the word that he, of which he is the author and that you would fill our hearts full on this day in which we celebrate together the beautiful words, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, that's most likely John. And we think of that as like, you know, okay, the one whom Jesus loved is going to preach today. Are you ready? That's not the spirit in which it was written at all. This was really kind of a, in that day, it was a, it was a point of humility in which Jesus uh, or John identified himself. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. All four Gospels begin the resurrection account by saying that it was on the first day of the week, not the third day after Jesus was crucified. That's one of the reasons that we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. And we have done so from the very beginning, through the ages. Mary assumed that someone had Jesus, had taken Jesus' body away, not that he had risen from the dead. Although Mary Magdalene had no expectation of Jesus' resurrection, this woman 
from whom Jesus had cast seven evil spirits, loved her Lord deeply. Mary was distressed with her discovery of an empty tomb. So she ran to inform Peter. Now that probably indicates that even after Peter's denial, he was considered to be the leader of the apostleship. So she went to tell Peter and the others that the Lord had risen or the Lord's body was no longer in the tomb. Peter's response, he and the other disciple, whom we assume is the apostle John, took off running to the tomb. As we would say when I was growing up, they took off lickety-split, heading for the tomb. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, or the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John, who was younger, got to the tomb ahead of Peter. He waited at the edge of the tomb, either out of timidity or out of respect for Peter's position among the disciples. What do you think Peter did when he got in? What do you think Peter did? We know, verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been placed on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Care had been taken to fold this cloth and put it off to the side. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Jesus was no longer at the place of his burial. Now, if you were a detective on the scene, you would have immediately taken notice that although the body was missing, the grave clothes had been left behind. And it's not like Jesus was dressed in a nice suit with a tie and laid out. He had strips of cloth. There is room in the Greek for thinking this could have been one covering, but very likely strips of cloth with the spices all wrapped together. And they were there, but the body was gone. Either way, Jesus had come right through the cloth as he would later come through a locked door. And the head covering was folded neatly, put to the side. Now, as we know from the other four Gospels, the religious leaders sought to portray this as a grave robber. Somebody has stolen his grave, and they're making up this story that Jesus has risen from the dead. But the evidence does not support the claim at all. It is almost impossible to conceive that someone seeking to steal Jesus' body would take the time to arrange the cloths this way, especially with the guard outside the tomb. Desperate to get their hands on the dead body of, the, of, of Jesus, the Jewish leaders would have done anything to do so, so that they could say, behold the body, this is all a lie. But they would fail in their efforts, and we can reach the happy conclusion that their failure was the result of the non-existence of the dead body they sought. Jesus was alive. 
Well, at least John reached the conclusion that Jesus was alive, but he had not yet fully processed the conclusion to which he had come. Have you ever been in that spot? You haven't fully processed the conclusion to which you have come. He, he did not connect the Old Testament scriptures with the scene before him. And I'm so glad that we never have doubts about the way God fulfills his word and is always working to accomplish his will. Nobody had that problem this week, did they? Is there anyone here sometimes slow to believe? I think you'll agree with me that we often assume John and Peter's posture. We return to our home wondering what these things mean. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Just tell me, I'll take care of the body. Now again, we know from the other accounts that there were women with Mary Magdalene, but all four Gospels report that Mary was among the first to arrive at the tomb and among the first, probably the first, to see the risen Lord. Just imagine the implications that this sinful woman, well, considered sinful, we'll talk about that in just a moment, this, this woman who of, 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 of questionable reputation, was the very first one to see Jesus when he had risen from the dead. We know that Mary had been delivered of demons by Jesus. And although the accounts you may have heard about her character are speculative, an unfair speculation at that. We don't know that she was an immoral woman. All the <clears throat> accounts or many of the, the secular accounts of those days portray Mary as a prostitute. We have no idea that that was the case. I think the chosen second season coming out tonight is a much better indication of what Mary was, who had struggled with demon possession, for goodness sakes. No wonder this woman loved him the way that she did. Mary saw two angels and this is very interesting to me. She was not terrified, as Scripture usually tells us people who see angels are. They, they fall on their, 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 their face. They're, they're thinking, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead woman. I've seen an angel of the Lord. They usually have to say, fear not. I don't know if there's any significance to this observation or not, but Mary just carried on a conversation with them. She knew that they were something special. They were in this bright white. She was distraught that they had taken Jesus away. And when the gardener asked Mary why she was weeping, 
she again voiced her dismay at the absence of a body. And then her eyes were open. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then, and that he had said these things to her. Something about the way that, Mary, that Jesus said Mary's name caused her to know instantly that the man she thought to be the gardener was Jesus. We can assume that he said her name tenderly, Mary. And she responded, Rabboni. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name. And they follow him. Time and again you have heard me say that John has a theological purpose in the way that he has written his gospel. In this moment Mary Magdalene wasn't thinking about theology. She was deeply moved to see Jesus and she called him what she always called him. Teacher Rabboni. What are we to make of Jesus telling Mary don't cling to me? You can imagine that much ink has been spilled through the centuries trying to answer this question. But it's likely, just this simple, that Mary had fallen to her feet and she had grabbed him by the legs and said, Oh, my, my Lord and my Savior. And Jesus' response means something like this. Mary, you can't keep holding on to me. There's, there, there's much to do. Go and tell the disciples that I have risen and I will ascend to my father. I am in the process of ascending to my father who, by the way, is your father also. also. And his purposes supersede this moment. Is there any more joyful news to be able to tell than to tell others? Jesus lives and he wants you to know it. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and when were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The first word that Jesus uttered when he walked into the room was shalom. The Hebrew word for peace. But not just any peace. This was kingdom peace. George Beasley Murray said this about shalom. Quote, Jesus Shalom on Easter evening is the compliment of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Not surprisingly, it is included 
along with grace in the greeting of every epistle of Paul in the New Testament. Close quote. That's beautifully said. Peace. Grace. Good news. Your salvation is not dependent on what you do. It's dependent on what he has done. What do you suppose ran through their minds when Jesus showed them his scars and the wound in his side? With all they had experienced over the weekend, now on Sunday evening, the disciples began to process the meaning of Jesus' suffering that ended in death. A death that was defeated on Easter morning when Jesus came out of the grave. Not only their suffering, but all our suffering is brought into perspective as Jesus reveals the wounds on his body. William Temple reminds us that Jesus' wounds are his credentials to the suffering race of human beings. In other words, when you're tempted to say, how could a good and loving God allow this and this and this to happen? Remember the wounds. Remember Jesus' suffering. It is fitting that we prepare to go out from this place on this Easter Sunday with Jesus' commission to his disciples burning in our hearts. Once again, in verse 21, Jesus declares peace to his disciples when he tells them that in the same way that the Father had sent him, he is sending his disciples to the world. Why? To continue his mission. So was the commission of verse 21 given specifically to the disciples or does it apply to us all? Yes is probably the best answer. But understanding it this way. The disciples had a special role in the formation of Jesus' church as apostles. But it's our understanding that the same commission to continue Jesus' mission was given to all who would and will believe. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Boy, good to end on two really easy verses, right? There are several possible explanations for verse 22. We know from John 15, 3 that Jesus had already declared his disciples to be clean because of the word that he had spoken to them. We... <clears throat> Also uh, know from John 14, 17 that Jesus had said to his disciples, the spirit dwells with you for special purposes and will be in you. As in Pentecost, the day would come when the Holy Spirit would come to indwell uh, the disciples and all who will believe. The disciples were surely already saved at this point. And regardless of the viewpoint taken on these verses, almost everyone believes that Jesus' breath on the disciples was symbolic, most likely symbolic of the falling of the spirit of believers on believers at Pentecost. So as tricky as verse 22 is, verse 23 is trickier still. 
But when we understand how powerful it is, if you look at Jesus' words without a broader understanding of the Scripture, you may think that he is giving his disciples the power to forgive sins. Now, this is very similar to what's going on in Matthew 16, where he's talked about Peter being um, the one who will open the keys to, to the gospel for the Jews, Gentile Samaritans. It's all there in the book of Acts where Peter is involved in every new group of people that comes to Christ. He has some kind of role in that. But it would be a view that is held by Catholics and some Protestants as well to say that someone can forgive you your sins. And look, even in James 5, we understand the importance of confession of our sins to one another. So we get why people can believe that. Uh, but the notion of apostolic succession or the fact that the authority is, is passed from one to another uh, is a theological construct that does not have chapter-verse support. Far better to understand that Jesus is saying to the disciples that when they share the gospel with others, those who believe will be forgiven of their sins and those who do not believe will not be forgiven. This is about the message of the gospel. Do you believe it or do you not? So why not just say it that way? In addition to the fact that we are not God, and so therefore really don't get to ask that question demanding an answer. <clears throat> Perhaps this emphasizes the importance of the gospel, which is a different message on how we are related to God than any other religion in the world. How do we get to God? The truth is we cannot get to God. We are incapable of working our way to God. He must reveal himself to us and condescend to meet us if we are to know him. And he did that at the cross. And the resurrection put the Father's stamp of approval on the Son's work on the cross. So on this Easter Sunday... If you have lived your life trying to make yourself presentable to God, hoping that your good works are good enough for him to say, well, okay, yeah, you come on into heaven. Then from the text that we have read today, it is as if Jesus is showing you the scars in his hands and the wound in his side. And telling you to lay down the burden of trying to be good enough. It's a requirement you can never fulfill. That's the reason. The reason Jesus said it is finished. The only one who could ever pay the price for our sin did so on the cross. Jesus died for you so that in repenting from your sins or confessing your sins to the Lord. And believing in him, believing that Jesus died for you, in so doing, you can know shalom. Peace with God. Peace in your heart. 
And if you already know this peace, it is your privilege and your mission to share this good news with those who do not know. And while you don't have the power to extend or withhold forgiveness of sins, you know the one who does hold the power of forgiveness. And you can point him to others through the gospel. So who is it to whom we are pointing? To the crucified and risen Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts overflow with joy. That Jesus is risen. We have several weeks considered in the Gospel of John. The agony that Jesus endured on the night before he was crucified. Realizing what it meant for the Father to turn his back on on the Son. As he bore the wrath of God. And Father, this day when we celebrate the resurrection, may... It it encourage and, and change our hearts so that we live not only as those who have died with Christ, but as those who live with him. May the life of the risen Savior be revealed in us. We are grateful that you have made us one with him. And, and, and we're also grateful that we get to do this together as the body of Christ serving the risen Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.